0: Hello, welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. We'll see how long it works. Uh, Students, I want you to have a look around and um, have a look at the grads and the family and friends who've made an effort to be here tonight. Um, they probably haven't made that effort just because they want to have a great night. They might have a mildly enjoyable night, I hope, but uh, they're actually here because they care about you. And many of them care about you and the ministry you receive so much that they pray for you, some every week, some every day. And many of them actually give of their hard-earned income so that you can have the ministry that you have on campus. So it is just so nice to have them with us tonight, a a selection of them. We don't have, you know, there's thousands of grads and friends and supporters who provide the ministry that you enjoy. There's 150 of them here tonight. So if you get the chance, why don't you say thank you? And you you know what they'd love you to do? Grow up and be just like them. That's what they'd love you to do. And we hope that you will do that and you'll be the grads who care about generations of students after you. So let's pray and then let's dig into the Bible and we'll, uh, we'll grow together. Let's pray. Our Father God, we're really thankful to you to be together tonight. We're so thankful for the grads and the supporters and friends and family members who've made the trek up here tonight to be with us. Father, we pray that you'll teach us all tonight from your word. Help us understand by your spirit, your word that you teach us, so that we might live lives that honour you as you deserve. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So you want to find your calling in life. Perhaps the most common issue of guidance that there ever has been. You want to find your calling. But how are you going to make the right call and find your true calling? There is good news and there is bad news. The good news is, that there are thousands of articles online all about finding your calling. The bad news? There are thousands of articles online that are all about finding your calling. Let me demonstrate with just a few. Oprah has some advice for you about finding your calling. And as you might expect from Oprah's organisation, there are some special gems in the article. My personal favourite was this. Before I tell my life what I want to do with it, I must listen for what my life wants to do with me. Hmm. Deep. On my search page, as I I looked for articles, the WikiHow site caught my attention because it promised not just an article but an illustrated article on the search page, an illustrated article on how to find your calling and it did not let me down. Do you think they just stole those pictures from a 1980s Christian campsite brochure <laughs> and Photoshopped WikiHow onto the Bible? Do you think that's how they did it? I'm a bit suspicious. Um, on the BetterUp blog, they gave me 16 tips to help me when I don't know how to find my calling. I tried a few of their tips and I found that pottery making is my true calling. I know, it's wonderful, isn't it? You see, I started at tip seven. And I reflected on things that I loved as a kid. And for some weird reason, my public primary school had pottery-making classes. Yeah, it was fun. There was no homework. So, you know, of course I loved it. Um, to put it in the language of, verse, uh, of tip three, my body liked pottery. Um, I am sure... Uh, sorry, I'm not sure how well I applied tip nine about limiting distractions... But I do know that I nailed tip 10 because social media hadn't been invented yet. Um, So, little 10-year-old me applied tip 6 and expressed myself in pottery, however it felt right. And this is what my calling to the pottery world produced. That is not pottery. They are crimes against art. And can you believe that my mother kept them? She has kept them for way too long, those ceramic atrocities for all these years. I think she should have told me to apply tip 12. Go and play outside, Carl. Perhaps on the road. Um, Look, but if... If 16 tips, if 16 tips isn't quite enough for you, you might prefer Forbes magazine's 20 ways to find your calling and it comes with a free luxury watch. Let me, I can't go through all 20, so let me just give you three of my favourites from Forbes magazine. Number five, burn your plans. That's going to help. Uh, number 11, roam a library. Um, and number 19, be authentically uncool. I can do that. LAUGHTER um, Are you starting to get a feel for the quality of advice online about finding your calling? Are you starting to get a feel for it? What even is a calling? Most of the articles that I just quoted from don't even define what they mean by calling. Here is the closest that WikiHow gets to defining what a calling actually is. By looking within yourself to identify what's most important to you and making room for your passions you can begin to uncover that special thing that you were born to do. Right. Opera's writer changes the terminology to vocation. Sounds cooler, just means calling in Latin, don't get too excited. And here is opera's writer's best definition. I've come to understand vocation not as a goal to be achieved but as a gift to be received. There's rhyming there. The treasure of true self I already possess vocation doesn't come from a voice out there calling me to become something i'm not it comes from a voice in here calling me to be the person i was born to be it's more opera kind of depth isn't it more it's it's rubbish forbes magazine didn't even bother trying to define what calling is they just launched straight into their 20 ways to do it and get a luxury watch and one last definition your life's calling is what makes you feel that life is meaningful It helps you live a purposeful life. Callings look different for for everybody. Are you any wiser about what calling really is? The reason these articles struggle to define calling is because calling is unashamedly a biblical concept. And these articles are not written from a Christian perspective. Calling takes its name from the thing God does by his sovereign will as he directs people into various situations in life. But if you are a secular writer tasked with explaining calling without reference to God, good luck. But you know what saddens me even more than the rubbish out there, the secular rubbish about calling, it's that Christian blogs and books on calling, Christian books on calling, basically say the same thing. Let me quote from one book that I read recently, a Christian book on guidance. Though we have to discover our calling, we should also recognise that it is already in us, very much a part of our identity, waiting to be discovered and expressed, like perennial seeds that once planted produce flowers that come up year after year. Next quote, the process of discovering our calling is as subtle as sign language where every movement and gesture counts for something. Third quote, we come to know the will of God as a life calling through experience itself. We discover what our calling is in the same way that an artist paints on a canvas or a person falls in love. What troubles me is where these quotes leave me looking as I try to find my calling from God. It's all about looking at me and my experiences and what God has put in me and what each of my gestures and movements of mind tell me about my calling. Do you really think the best way to find your calling is just to look at yourself? We need to look at God's Word if we're really going to work out calling. So let's listen to what God says about his calling we're at point one the call of God the Bible introduces us to a God who calls his people from the very early chapters of Genesis where God called Abram we just read it to leave his home country and his family and go to an unknown land all the way through the Bible to the great fulfillment in the gospels where the son of God calls 12 unimpressive fishermen and tax collectors to leave their day jobs and follow him The Bible is very clear that God is a God who calls His people. What is less clear is what exactly He calls His people to. And part of the reason for that lack of clarity is that there is more than one type of call in the Bible. There is more than one type of call from God. Let's start with the broadest call. It's it's known as the universal call. God makes this universal call to all humans throughout all the world to repent and to turn back to him. This call of God invites people all over the world, all people, to come and receive salvation. It's seen in many of the offers that Jesus makes in the Gospels, often addressed to everyone or all people. So a good example would be Matthew 11, verse 28. Jesus says, come to me all you who labour and are heavy laden and I will give you rest. It's an unconditional call, it's it's out there to everyone, come on over. God extends that kind of general call out universally to all sinners everywhere. But sadly, you probably know that all sinners everywhere are not able to respond to that generous universal call. The Bible tells us that we humans caught in our sinful rebellion against God, are by nature spiritually incapable on our own of responding correctly to God's invitation. Ephesians chapter 2 explains why on the screen. Ephesians 2, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Our human problem is that because of our rebellion we were dead in our sins. Dead people are not very good at responding. The Apostle Paul speaks about this natural human inability to respond to the general call of the gospel in 1 Corinthians 2 verse 14. We've looked at this term in the Bible talks. The natural person that's the person without God's Spirit, does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. He is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. On our own, in our spiritually dead state, we human sinners are incapable of responding the right way to God's generous universal call to all mankind. But all is not lost because God can powerfully change the life of any human rebel through the powerful regenerating work of his spirit. And that is where we move to the second important type of call from God. It's called the special call to the elect. This special call to the elect is a personal call that flows out of God's personal decision to choose or elect individual people for salvation. The Apostle Paul shows how this personal call fits within God's sovereign work. In Romans 8, verses 28 to 30. And we know that those who love, for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called, there it is, called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, those whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Can you see that this calling is more than just a general invitation? The chain of events which begins with God's predestining election of sinners before the foundation of the world moves unstoppably through calling and justification and then glorification with Jesus. This is an unbreakable chain of events that define the life of every Christian and God's personal call is a critical link in the chain. It is this unbreakable chain that reinforces the guaranteed effective nature of this personal call of God. That is why you'll sometimes hear this personal call referred to as the effectual call. It means that this call always achieves its purpose of salvation. It never fails. If God has predestined you and elected you for salvation, this call is irresistible in that you can't hold it off. You can't resist it. This is a call that you can't possibly miss. God's plans and purposes, they will not be thwarted even by human sin because God has given his spirit to every elect person that he calls. And with that beautiful, enlightening work of the spirit working in our hearts, you and I can actually receive and respond to the special call of God and respond the right way to it. Now, you might have heard of this thing called the Westminster Confession of Faith. It was actually instigated, get this, it was instigated by an act of English Parliament. That's what brought it about. Parliament decided, we want this to happen. In 1643, the English Parliament called upon, and I quote, learned, godly and judicious divines to meet in Westminster Abbey in order to produce advice, on issues of worship, government, and discipline in the Church of England. Now, these learned godly and judicious divines then met regularly for five years. Five years! And they produced a masterpiece of theology that we now call the Westminster Confession. Now, the English Parliament wanted all of their citizens to know the great theological truths in this beautiful Westminster Confession. But remember where we are in history, we're in the 17th century. Most people in the 17th century in England could not read. They were illiterate. So how do you teach good theology to illiterate people, to uneducated people? How do you get good theology to stick in the minds of peasants who can't read? Interestingly, the Roman Catholic Church generally went for pictures And images. That's why guys like Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of chapels. Unfortunately, pictures and images usually just lead people towards idolatry. And you might still see that problem today in the Roman Catholic Church. But Christianity is unshakably a word-based faith. And the reformers came up with a much better word-based solution. The answer was a catechism. Now, a catechism is a series of questions and answers that can be rote learned. You can learn it even if you can't read. You just learn it by heart. And the Westminster crew produced two very good catechisms, a shorter one and a longer one. And to show you how good these Westminster catechisms actually are, Let me quote for you the two questions and answers that relate to our issue that we're just talking about this special calling of the elect. Up on the screen. Question 30 How does the Spirit apply to us the redemption purchased by Christ? The Spirit applies to us the redemption purchased by Christ by working faith in us and thereby uniting us to Christ in our effectual calling. Next slide. What is effectual calling? Effectual calling is the work of God's spirit, whereby convincing us of our sin and misery, enlightening our minds in the knowledge of Christ and renewing our wills, he doth persuade and enable us to embrace Jesus Christ freely offered to us in the gospel. Wow. That is so impressive in such a small amount of words. Can you imagine how good your theology would be if you just memorised the Westminster Confession, the Catechisms? And that is exactly what many illiterate, uneducated peasants did back in the 17th century. The Westminster Catechisms are beautiful theology made simple and made memorable and many illiterate peasants are safe in heaven with Christ because they heard and understood the fullness of the gospel through the Westminster Shorter Catechism. This effectual call to the elect that we're talking about, it is the dominant call of God in the Bible. It is by far the call of God that the Bible focuses our attention upon the most. Now, one of the interesting things about language is that you can talk about something... The same thing in a lot of different ways. Let me give you an example. I married a girl. I married my friend. I married a med graduate. I married Michael and Marion's daughter. I married an impressive chef. I married a kind and godly Christian woman. I married someone who is less of a perfectionist than me. I married a woman I love and I am not a bigamist. Isn't it interesting that language allows us to speak about the same thing in so many different ways? Do you know the Bible talks about this personal call to the elect in a similar variety of ways. In Romans 1 verse 6, it's described as the personal call um, to belong to Jesus. Romans 1 verse 7 talks about it as the call to be saints. 1 Corinthians 1 verse 9 says that the believers have been called into fellowship with God's Son. 1 Thessalonians 4 verse 7 says that this call is to a holy life. Remember, cycling lycra. Sorry for those who weren't here last night. Get the talk on tape. Uh, 2, 2 Timothy 1 verse 9 speaks about Christians being called to a holy calling. More lycra. Uh, Galatians five thirteen adds that we've been called to Christian freedom. In in Colossians 3.15, saved Christians are called to peace. 1 Peter 2.9 talks about being called out of darkness into this wonderful light. And 1 Peter 2.21 teaches that this call is to a life of perseverance and suffering. These verses are all talking about the same personal call of God to his elect. It's like another beautiful diamond with many beautiful facets. You can describe God's call to the elect in all of these beautiful different ways. The different facets are not different calls. They are just different ways of speaking about this one beautiful personal call of God that brings us into a perfect relationship with our Lord Jesus and unites us with our God. So if you want to understand how the Bible uses the language of calling, this personal call of God to the elect is where nearly all the action is. And what more beautiful calling could you possibly receive? It is a life-changing, earth-shattering, salvation-producing call. And yet, most Christians want to focus on which job God might be calling them into? Can you see that to focus the calling of God onto employment options or self-fulfillment choices is actually to miss the big thing the Bible is talking about when using calling language? The truly important call of God is this personal call to salvation in Jesus. That is the call that the Bible focuses on. That's the call that you and I should focus on if we want to be biblical in our use of calling language. Now, we've covered both the universal call of God and the special, personal, effectual call of God. And with those two types of calling covered, we have actually covered 99% or more of what the Bible talks about as God's call. Biblically, there is less than 1% left to cover. So we move to what I'm going to call the situational call of God. We're at point two, the situational call. As far as I can see, and I've had a pretty good look, the situational call of God is spoken about in one passage in the whole Bible. Could you please turn in your Bibles to the passage that was read to us before, 1 Corinthians chapter 7. This passage comes in the middle of a chapter that is all about different life situations. Situations like being betrothed or engaged to be married. Situations like being single or being married. Situations like being a believer in Jesus and finding your spouse doesn't want to believe in Jesus. Situations like being widowed or having your spouse walk away from your marriage. This passage is all about different situations in life that a Christian might find themselves in. And this passage alone in the whole Bible does say that God has called you to your life situation. Have a look at verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. In our English versions of the Bible, it is this verse that looks like the clearest reference to your life situation as a calling from God. But in the original language, in the Greek that, uh, that the Apostle Paul actually wrote in, verse 20 is even clearer. Have a, have a quick look at verse 20. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. In the original Greek, it literally says each one should remain in the calling in which he was called. This is the only passage in the whole New Testament that uses calling language to describe a Christian's general life situation. And can you see the theological logic behind this usage? If God is sovereign over everything that happens in his world, then even your life situation is part of his sovereign direction. That's the logic. So in this passage, and pretty much as far as I can see, only this passage, your life situation is being described As a calling from God. So, what does the Apostle Paul actually say about this situational calling? Should we spend time searching out the unique personal life situation that God has called us to? Should we be trying to find another life situation that God might be calling us to that's tailor made for each one of us? Let's have a look. What we immediately need to see is that Paul is using the term calling in this little passage to mean two different things, two different things in this passage. You see one of them in verse 18. Let's have a look again. Verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. When Paul speaks about the time of his call, that call is definitely God's special personal call to the elect, It's the call that saves you when you believe in Jesus. But if we step forward to verse 20, the Apostle Paul is clearly using the language of calling to refer to a believer's life situation or condition in life. We just read it. And that's reinforced in verse 21 as the logic extends straight into the possible life situation of slavery or, as our Bibles term it, being a bond servant. So it's very clear in this passage that the Apostle Paul is using calling language in two different ways to describe your salvation and your life situation. So with that clear, let's go back to the start of the passage and and work it through. Verse 17. Only let each person lead the life that the Lord has assigned to him and to which God has called him. This is my rule in all the churches. Paul is basically saying that each Christian should continue To live in the life situation in which God has placed them. Now, when you think of life situation, what do you think of? You might think of job, maybe suburb, maybe marital status. But look where the Apostle Paul goes first. Verse 19. Sorry, let's go verse 18. Was anyone at the time of his call already circumcised? Let him not seek to remove the marks of circumcision. Was anyone at the time of his call uncircumcised? Let him not seek circumcision. Isn't that interesting? When Paul speaks about a Christian situation in life when they were saved, the first situational marker that he reaches for is not whether they were an engineer or a lawyer or whether they lived in Jerusalem Heights or Bethlehem Fields, the life situation that Paul immediately speaks about is circumcision or uncircumcision. These are personal religious markings. Is it possible that there is more to your life situation than just the job you do and the suburb that you live in? Who'd have thunk it? Why I find this even more interesting is because I've heard a lot of Christians say that they, they feel that God is calling them to particular life situations. But I've never heard a Christian wondering whether God has called them to be circumcised or not. This very helpful example suggests some really important things about situational calling. First, your situational calling goes a lot deeper than just your job or your suburb. God has also called you to situational things which are much deeper and yet somehow more mundane, things like whether you have the markings of a previous religion on your body, put upon your body by your parents before you even thought about searching for your calling. Perhaps we could even paraphrase the Apostle Paul and say, was was your family Buddhist when God called you to faith in Jesus? Don't let that trouble you. You don't need to reject them. It's the same kind of logic, isn't it? Paul says that your situation when you were called doesn't really matter very much. Circumcised, uncircumcised? Ah, doesn't matter. Makes no difference when you've been called to belong to Christ. Your situational call doesn't really matter that much, but something else really does matter. Look at verse 19. For neither circumcision counts for anything, nor uncircumcision but. Keeping the commandments of God It's a clear priority order right here on situational calling. Paul is saying get your attention off your situational calling because it doesn't matter and get your attention on obeying God because that really does matter. But even more than that, because your situational calling doesn't really matter, you don't need to spend all your time and energy trying to change it. Look what he says in verse 20 again. Each one should remain in the condition in which he was called. Now remember, this is the one key passage that uses calling language to talk about a life situation in which you were called. And what does the Apostle Paul say about the situation of your calling? Not go away and read some bad Christian blogs and find your true situational calling not even move towards a different situational calling that you might think God is calling you to. He basically says, at ease, soldier. You can stay right where you are. You don't need to find your true situational calling because you are already in it. God has called you to the situation you are in exactly at any particular time in your life. In fact, if you want to know the exact situation to which God has called you, just look around. You're in it right now. And that means this situational calling is another unmissable call. It is unmissable not because God has guaranteed it will be effectual, like the special call of the gospel. It is unmissable because it is always where you are at right now. So I could legitimately say that God has called me to live in Kensington near UNSW. Under God's sovereign hand, that's the truth. I can be sure about that because I currently live in Kensington, UNSW near the university. And God has sovereignly led your life to where you are right now and you could choose to describe your current situation as your calling from God, your situational calling from God. And wherever you find yourself in five years' time, it'll be different, won't it? God will have sovereignly called you there and you could rightly choose to describe that situation as your calling from God. But you can only do this in the present and look back on it in the past. You cannot predict this future calling of God. James reminds us of that up on the screen. Come now you who say today or tomorrow we'll go into such and such a town and spend a year there in trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? You're a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. Instead you ought to say if the Lord wills we will live and do this or that. God knows your situational calling in the future. God's got it all under control. But you can only know it when you are in it. So I can't legitimately say that God is calling me to live in Maroubra. I have no factual basis of any truthful guidance from God that tells me God will call me to live anywhere. And I would make it even worse if I said that I feel like God is calling me to live in Maroubra. No one who is called in the Bible ever receives a call through feeling it. Feeling called is an unbiblical nonsense. Be careful of using it to justify your ungodly future desires. But hang on, we need to keep reading because it looks like Paul might change his mind in verse 21. Let's have a look. Verse 21. Were you a bondservant when called? Do not be concerned about it, but... Ooh, but... But if you can gain your freedom, avail yourself of the opportunity. It's a bit of a U-turn. What's going on? Because your situation calling doesn't really matter, you don't have to change it. But also because your situational calling doesn't really matter, you can change it. Can you see the logic is there? It's, It's the same logic, isn't it? You can change it if it's helpful. So if a slave can obtain their freedom, that's okay. They can do it because their situational calling doesn't really matter. And if they do become a free citizen, that is their new situational calling. But we need to work out why this situational calling does not really matter. And I thought that's the kind of question I'd like to throw over to you to chat about with the person next to you. So for 30 seconds, could you have a chat about this question on the screen? Why do you think your situational calling does not matter very much? 30 seconds. Enjoy. Hello, hello. Okay, let's try and work this out together. Why does your situational calling not really matter? The answer is in verse 22. Have a look. For he who was called in the Lord as a bondservant is a freed man of the Lord. Likewise, he who was free when called is a bondservant of Christ. Can you see the answer? Your situational calling doesn't really matter because the personal call of the gospel to belong to Christ is the thing that now truly shapes your life. Are you a slave in your present life situation? That does not define you because in Christ you are completely free. And if your situation is to be a free person in society, the personal call of the gospel to belong to Christ has transformed your whole life so that you are willingly and happily a slave for Christ. Paul's argument just keeps making the same point. Your situational calling doesn't really matter, but the special call of the gospel on your life shapes everything. And then we get this mysterious little verse in verse 23. Have a look at it with me and. See if you can work out what's going on. Verse 23, you were bought, um, yep, you were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Hang on. Whoa, hey, what? Where did that come from? We just worked it out that it doesn't matter if you're a bondservant. Where did this come from? You were bought with a price. Do not become bondservants of men. Paul can't be forbidding a literal situation of bondservantry, if we can make up a word. He's just said that it doesn't matter if your situation is to be a bondservant because you're truly free in Christ. I wonder whether the logic of the passage really helps us here because the passage just keeps reinforcing the same point, doesn't it? Other humans might even have bought your life for a situation of slavery, but they are not the ones who truly own you. Your life is owned by the Lord Jesus who paid dearly at the cross, to call you into his service. When Paul says don't be bondservants to humans, I think he is basically saying that human slavery, even human slavery, is not the calling that defines you. The call of the gospel trumps your situational calling every day. And the lordship of Jesus over your life takes priority over any human master you have a more important master to serve so even if you remain in your situation of slavery your higher calling is to the master who paid more dearly for you the personal call of the gospel trumps situational calling yet again so verse 24 sums up the final word on situational calling verse 24 so brothers and sisters In whatever condition each was called, there let him remain with God. You don't need to go worrying about changing your situational calling. Your situation is perfectly fine exactly as it is, even if you were a slave to another another human master. The personal call of Christ upon your life is now everything that shapes who you truly are. Now, this is a very helpful passage for understanding your situational calling. And I think the message could not be clearer. Your life situation calling is really just the unimportant background details for your truly important calling, which is the special call of the gospel to belong to Jesus and to serve him. So we're going to pause here and have a break. and We're going to sing about this very thing. Your life situation calling is really just the unimportant background details for your truly important calling, which is the special call of the gospel to belong to Jesus and serve him. So may I ask you an awkward question? Why have Christians become fixated on a situational calling which is hardly ever mentioned in the Bible, and the only time it is, we are commanded not to fixate on it. We're at point three. Why do we struggle with this? Why has nearly every Christian pastor on the internet put out a blog about how to find your situational calling when the Bible says you shouldn't even try? Why do you think we struggle in this area when the biblical evidence is so clear? I know we've just had a break, but I want you to think about this question with the person next to you, so I'm going to give you another little break. Bonus. There's a question on the screen. You've got 30 seconds. Dig in. Okay, I would love to come around and hear your thoughts. Unfortunately, I'm I'm going to have to hear them later, but here's some thoughts from me. My first question, in a sense, is, is it Western individualism again? Even though you cannot get more personal than the special call of the gospel into a personal relationship with the God of the whole universe, somehow that call doesn't excite us as much as a situational call that seems to be somehow more individually specific? Is it because my situational calling speaks of unique situational details that belong just to me? I have been individually called to live in Kensington with quite a few other people who also live in Kensington. Is that why we fall in love with situational calling, when we really should be blown away by the intimacy of our personal call to belong to Jesus? Is it because every Christian actually gets the same beautiful personal call of the gospel to belong to Jesus? To quote from one of our more profound movies of your time, is it that if everyone is special, then no one is special? If all Christians get the same personal call, perhaps it doesn't feel quite as special, whereas Kensington versus somewhere else seems perversely to be a level up in intimacy. You know, I'm tempted to say that Western individualism is the problem here, but this problem exists just as strongly amongst our Asian Christian brothers and sisters who come from an Eastern communal worldview So I don't think it's just Western individualism. I think it is profoundly more universal. It is our human egocentric sin. We just naturally like to focus upon ourselves and we get more excited about things that specifically relate to our own personal situation. But even egocentrism isn't the only cause of this problem. I wonder whether our problem here is also caused by the challenge of living by faith rather than by sight. Remember what the Apostle Paul said about faith and sight? I'll put it on the screen. He said, So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we're away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Everything about the important personal call of the gospel, calling me into a personal relationship with Jesus, I can only experience by faith, by trusting in the word of God that assures me of this important truth. We saw this last night, didn't we? We have every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we can't touch them or even see them. And sometimes we may not even feel them. But I can see my situational calling. It's tangible. It's solid. It's earthly. It's a Kensington address. It's a wedding ring on my finger. It's a business card with my status embossed on it. Maybe in gold or something. Wouldn't that be nice? My situational calling gives me realities that I can see with my own eyes and touch with my own fingers and therefore they are much easier to believe because they are right there in front of me. Is this another area where it is hard to live by faith and not by sight? And can I push it one more? Can I I push one more? Let's do it. Does it also expose the problem of careerism? that so easily consumes even the lives of Christians? Have we somehow made our jobs so important as a defining feature of our lives that we feel the need to theologically justify our choices in this area? Is it possible that we've been so zealous to justify our career obsessions that we've inadvertently moved the priority of calling in this direction just to justify the priority that we've given to our jobs in defining our lives actually i've got one more left field possibility can i sneak it in one more possibility is it possible that we might actually be scared scared of the freedom that comes with a biblical view of situational calling Is the freedom of a biblical situational calling so broad and so undefined that we would prefer to narrow it down and be constrained in this area, at least by something, even if that something is subjective guidance that we have invented for ourselves? Perhaps situational freedom is scary because it pushes us to have to make wise, godly decisions without a clear roadmap, Is the very freedom that Jesus gives us in our life situations the reason that we long for more certainty and in the end we invent more certainty for ourselves and we put God's name on it and calling to it? Whatever the cause of this problem, I think we can agree that we have a problem. Christians all over the world are shaping their lives on teaching in this area... That is not biblical. And because the Christian advice in this area of calling is not biblical, it is dangerous. And it's coming from some of the most influential Christian teachers in the world. So how are you going to respond? Which call will shape your life? We're at our last point now. I wonder whether in our misguided quest to find personal calls about jobs and ministries, we have actually underappreciated the truly important call from God. Have we been distracted by worldly ideas of calling and taken our eyes off the true heavenly calling? Against that backdrop of unhelpful secular and Christian guidance, we need to re-look at the Bible and let the Bible drive us to good theology. If the Bible has spoken so comprehensively about the personal call to belong to Jesus, to be free in Jesus, to live in holiness through Jesus and to suffer and persevere with Jesus, then we need to let the Bible teach us that that's the call that really matters in our life. Our lives are not primarily about our jobs or even about our ministry positions. Our lives are about being in relationship with Jesus and living in holiness with Him. And that is why we need to let the Bible keep telling us what is truly important. Because in our sin, we keep being distracted by the self-centred things that so easily capture our attention. We need to keep listening to God's word so God can lift our eyes to see the things that really matter. So which call... Will you shape your life around? Which call will set the priorities in your life? Which call will shape your identity? Which call will you keep focusing upon? If we took our priorities from the weighting that the Bible gives to each calling, what do you think that would look like in our lives? What would your life look like if you gave a biblical weighting, a proportional weighting similar to the Bible, to your situational calling and the special call of God in the gospel? It would make church and ministry a, pit, a pretty big priority in your life, wouldn't it? It would make your personal prayer time and Bible reading the most important part of your day, I think. And it would probably make the Bible study that you lead for two hours a week more of a priority than the day job where you spend 50 hours a week. In fact, can I focus in on employment as we finish this talk? Can I I focus in there? Students, when God gives you a full-time job, how are you going to think about your employment? Over the past couple of years, I've been encouraging CBS grads to think in terms of a first job and a second job. Let me explain what I mean. If you are a follower of Jesus, your first job is to live for Jesus and to serve Jesus. I don't think many Christians would argue with that statement. If you're a follower of Jesus, your first job is to live for Jesus and serve Jesus. Top priority, first job, serve your Lord. That means that any other employment that you take on is a second job. Now, you probably will need a second job to pay the bills. So you'll probably get a side hustle in, say, medicine or law or engineering or education or any other number of fields. It's a full-time job, but it's actually your second job, isn't it? Can you see how it's quite helpful to think about your employment as your second job? It keeps the priority of your life on the service of your Lord. And yes, I know that you will have to spend the majority of your waking hours in your second job. And you may only get to spend a few hours a week in your first job serving Jesus. But priority is not determined purely by hours given. The other helpful thing I think comes with this language of first job and second job is that it keeps careerism in its place. The rest of the world may live for their jobs, but Jesus saved you for so much more than that. Another helpful thing about this first job, second job language is that it reminds us that we all share the same first job whether we serve in it for five hours a week or for 50 hours a week, there are no second-class Christians when we all share the same first job. But that does lead to the next conclusion. Some of us need to sacrifice our second job in order to spend more of our time serving in our first job. That is what the pastors at CBS have done That is what the ministers at your church have done and that is perhaps what you should do with your life to serve in full-time ministry. Now, other Christians might need to make the opposite sacrifice. They might have wanted to serve in full-time ministry but they need to keep working in their second job to provide for their families and to provide for the ministry of the gospel. So how are you going to decide which sacrifice you should make? That all comes down to how God has gifted you to serve in that first job. If God has given you the gifts to teach his word well, the world needs more Bible teachers. And If that's you and you have the godliness, the character, the convictions and the competence to do it, I want to encourage you uh, to please consider giving up your second job in order to train to serve the world as a full-time Bible teacher. Now, I don't want you to do it tonight. I want you to go out and work for a couple of years, but I want you to consider it while you're doing that. If your gifts are better suited to supporting ministry and working your first job alongside a second job that takes lots of hours out of your week. I want you to do that and I want you to to keep working your second job and I want you to maximise your service in your local church. It's a great thing to do. How do you work out whether your gifts serve better in that role or that role? How do you work it out? Do you know the best way to work it out is to keep doing lots of ministry right now And to ask the people who know you well, who are watching you in ministry as you're teaching the Bible on campus, ask them, how do you think I will best serve the Lord with the gifts that he's given me? Now, if you want to think a bit more about this decision, we run Lyft Conference for this very reason. Each year, just to help people like you to work out whether you should give up that second job for the sake of serving Jesus with all your time. We'll be running Lyft Conference right here at Katoomba in a couple of months' time, the last weekend in July. And if you are wondering about whether you should give up that second job to serve the Lord full-time in the first job, come to Lyft Conference. We'll be talking a lot about it. But whatever you do, please let's not squabble about whether second-job keepers are better than second-job leavers or who's more important or... That's that's just ridiculously worldly behaviour. We share the same first job because we are united in Christ and we all live for him. Let's try to live out the priorities that we've learned tonight, whether we leave our second job or whether we stay working in our second job. We need each other and God can work through us as we work together, to see this gospel, this beautiful good news of the gospel proclaimed everywhere throughout the world. So whatever your gifts and whatever second job you might need to do or leave, would you focus on your first job? And would we let's keep working together to serve the world with the good news about Jesus. Let's pray. Now, Father, thanks for your word that challenges so many things that we've just taken for granted and just accepted. Thanks for this, uh, this challenge tonight. Uh, your Bible really does show us a, a, a waiting that prioritizes things in a way that's different to the way many of us have been thinking. So, Father, we do want to serve Jesus and we do want to live by your word. So, Father, please help us to grapple with this uh, this hard truth and to work out how we can shape our lives by this hard truth. We pray that you'll use us all in your service, whether that's as those who leave their second job or those who stay in their second job, but we all focus on that first job of loving the Lord Jesus and serving him. And we pray that you will use us as we work together to see the gospel go throughout the world so that people all over the world can hear that beautiful personal call of Jesus to turn to him, to repent and be forgiven. Father, thanks for the incredible privilege it is that you allow us to take our place in your glorious mission of the gospel to the world. Please strengthen us so we might take our place well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out on Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org.